Well, hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to the Dr. Joe Galati podcast, broadcasting high above the Texas Medical Center in Houston, purveyor of all things related to the liver, health and wellness, nutrition, food and cooking, and all around doctor banter and witty repartee with our experts that visit us. Our website is drjoegalati.com. If you'd like to send me a note, subscribe to our newsletter, or even see me as a patient. If you want to call and be part of the program, dial us at 888-438-9431. And now, on with the podcast. Coming to you live from Houston, Texas, home to the world's largest medical center. This is Your Health First, the most beneficial health program on radio with Dr. Joe Galati. During the next hour, you'll learn about health, wellness, and the prevention of disease. Now, here's your host, Dr. Joe Galati. Well, thank you so much for joining us this Sunday evening. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m., we are here bringing everybody the best in health and wellness, making you better consumers of health care. Our website, drjoegalati.com, drjoegalati.com. That is where you could find out about everything we do. What we do on the radio, what we do on social media, all of our links, our medical practice. If you want to learn about liver disease, drjoegalati.com is the place to go. So if this has not been a, a crazy week that typifies how 2020 has been going this year for everybody. First this week, we have the debates which we still have not stopped talking about. Then we find out at the end of the week, President Trump and Melania Trump, the first lady, test positive for COVID-19. He is shipped off to the hospital. And we are all here shaking our heads once again, shaken up by COVID-19. Here we are. It's October 2020, and we're still, it is still front and center in the news. And so what we have done tonight, we're bringing back a familiar voice and expert to the program, Dr. Howard Wong. He's the chief of the lung transplant program at Houston Methodist, and he is a researcher in COVID-19, and he was on only a few weeks ago. Howard, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. Well, uh, I didn't think we'd have you back so soon, but this is the way the world is in 2020. It, uh, it, it surprises us all the time. So I, I guess we will get around to talking about COVID-19 and, and President Trump. But overall, if you could give a 30,000-foot view, in a sense, of um, you know COVID-19... Um, the numbers are still rather startling, and I'm sure a lot of the people listening tonight are familiar. But do you have the numbers handy to sort of share with everybody? Yeah, unfortunately, the, the numbers have 
continue to grow you know, across the world and, and uh, also within the United States. Um, to date, there's been over 35 million cases worldwide. Uh-huh. And unfortunately, over a million um, confirmed deaths, uh, probably more than that, but at least, uh, uh, you know, that's the confirmed figure. And then in the United States, uh, there's about approaching seven and a half million cases uh, and um, over 200,000 deaths to date. Right, right. So to say that this is um, on its way out really is not in any way an accurate statement. I think that's right. Um, unfortunately, we're seeing kind of uh, new areas pop up or, you know, previously affected areas that seem to have tailed off earlier in the year, but then they're now having a, a, an increase in the number of cases. So I think we're probably facing kind of a, uh, a cyclic uh, phenomenon where, where we're going to have peaks and troughs of uh, cases, but it's not going to go away completely uh, anytime soon. Yeah. I was looking looking on Friday night, if you just look at the state of Texas, I believe the number of cases week over week is down about 15%. Uh, so that is a good trend. There are uh, uh, a good number of states where the numbers are actually increasing. So... Um, you know, it really is is just so tough to try to figure out how we are going to get this uh, under control and what that final chapter will look like, where one day we wake up and there are going to be just a minimal amount of cases. Are you under the impression that this may never quite go away and just get to a manageable state? Uh, I think that's a very real possibility, you know, much like uh, the flu kind of comes back every year or you know, some of these other uh, respiratory viruses that have a seasonal uh, peak uh, associated with cold weather. Um, this may be a similar phenomenon in the future. Yeah. Now, we uh, when when we spoke a few weeks ago, we went over some of the different therapeutics, and, and certainly you can um, uh, comment again about the, the research that you and your colleagues are doing. But has the the knowledge base on how to treat COVID-19, even in the last four to six weeks, has it expanded? Are we getting more comfortable with it? Or are we understanding it just a little bit better? What, what's your thought on that, Howard? Well, I think, you know, it's, it's partly reflected in the decrease in the case fatality rate. You know, so I think the medical community has become better at dealing with this. Um, we're not in the same situation as we were back in March and February, where this is a completely new phenomenon and nobody was completely sure what to do with it. There's still much more unknown than known, but I think kind of the basic management of these patients uh, is coming into clearer focus. Right. Would you say there are new therapeutics that you have available now compared to even four to six weeks ago? Yes. Um, so one of the um, medications that, that have uh, made some press within the last couple of weeks are the monoclonal antibodies. Right. And uh, the last time I was on your show, we were talking about starting a, a trial of one of these antibodies at Houston Methodist. But, right. uh, you know, over the last couple of weeks, some of the preliminary data has been released. And it looks pretty promising so far. Um, these are antibodies that are derived from patients who recover from the disease, who um, these antibodies are very potent in that they interfere with the virus's ability to infect cells. And they also increase the 
ability of the host to clear the virus. So, so it, it basically gives you gives your immune system a fighting chance um, in this race between the immune system and and the virus. Yeah, you know the uh, the last question before we get to the break here, um, it it really has to do I a question the spread of the virus, and in general, it's mask versus no mask, self-quarantining, staying hunkered down versus being very cautious to go out. We, um, uh, you know, we have established these bubbles for certain groups of people and they're getting infected. So do you think it is, and I don't want to say 100% preventable, but what do you think is the best odds being realistic on trying to prevent getting this where where does it lie total lockdown or getting out and being cautious what do you think well i think being cautious is probably a more pragmatic approach you know i think a total lockdown and and we've you know we've we're past really past that i don't think it's going to be possible for us to reinstitute a complete lockdown nor nor would it be palatable for for most patients or, or most people in, in general in the population um, I think population. Um, I think it's a matter of being wise about what sort of setting you place yourself in and what sort of protection you use, like masking and um, distancing, for example. Right, right. And, you know, I think if you're going to an environment where there's hundreds or thousands of people versus, uh, you know, a gathering at somebody's house or at work where it's a limited number of people, you're probably hedging your bet. It, it's probably a safer exposure. That's right. Yeah, but even small groups can potentially be a high risk scenario if nobody is wearing a mask. You know, and so it really depends on kind of the, um, the the proximity, but also the um, the intensity of the contact. Yeah, that is true. That is true. I mean, you could be with one person who has it and isn't wearing right. a mask. Or in a, yeah. Yeah, if you're in a very poorly ventilated space and one person in that room, uh, you know, with several other people in the room are. Uh, is infected and and nobody's wearing a mask, then that's potentially a very high-risk scenario. Absolutely. All right, Howard, we're going to take a a break right now and put you on hold. We have Dr. Howard Wong, chief of the lung transplant program, a COVID researcher over at Houston Methodist Hospital. We're going to get into what's going on with President Trump in a minute. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Don't forget, drjoegalati.com. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Every Sunday between 7 and 8 p.m., I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Go to drjoegalati.com for information about what we do. Find out all of our social media links, old programs, podcasts, blogs, all of it. drjoegalati.com. And coming up in a few minutes after we get done with Dr. Wong, An old friend of the program, Becky Vance. She's CEO of Drug Prevention Resources. And we're going to be talking about addiction, overdose, alcohol. Stay tuned. Don't miss it. All right, let's get back to Dr. Wong, head of the lung transplant program, a pulmonologist, a lung expert. And um, 
Howard, the um, when the story broke um, with uh, President Trump uh, Friday night, I guess, they started um, commenting that everybody around him, part of the White House protocol, has been tested. Before you get anywhere near the property, you're tested, but yet a whole bunch of people turned up positive. Can you explain to everybody tonight how that could have happened? Well, um The possible explanation is that um, the person who was indeed positive kind of had a a false negative test. Right. Um, So these tests are not, you know, 100% foolproof, and they do have a false negative rate. Um, The other possibility is that perhaps they weren't, even though they were contagious, they weren't um, expressing antigen or sufficient antigen to test positive. Right. Um, you know, so so it, there's a there's a number of possibilities, but but you know, it's just that there's definitely you know uh, uh, kind of this little window where somebody does have the disease but um, does not test positive, and so so you're not excluding all possible uh, carriers. Right. So you you you're almost have a a full sense of security by saying everyone's negative here, uh, but that certainly is not the case. Right, and I think this is a good demonstration because it really only takes one carrier to to infect potentially a lot of people. There's a lot of information coming out about you know the the viral load or you know, right. the amount of virus that somebody carries, and it seems that that a lot of people are uh, maximally infectious with a high viral load right before they become symptomatic. Right, and so so this is the, the inherent problem with this disease that. By the time you become symptomatic, you've probably been spreading it already. Right. Yeah. I mean that that is a quandary. That uh, you know how do you, how do you get your head around that? Other than I would think mask up everywhere you go, everywhere you go, and keep your distance. I mean that really is as simple as it is. That seems to be the formula. Yeah, and, and also you know taking into consideration the the, the ventilation, right? So I think right. one one of the one of the um, kind of stories I've read recently, or you know, the description of it, and I thought that everybody really could relate to, is kind of the idea of uh, secondhand smoke inhalation. Right. So there are certain environments and scenarios where you could potentially inhale a lot of secondhand smoke. Right. And those are usually the same sort of environments where you know potentially somebody with a respiratory virus can transmit it to other people. Right, right. Now, to use President Trump as sort of your generic case, uh, the first symptoms were runny nose, a little bit of a cough, a little bit of shortness of breath. Explain to everybody what the early symptoms may look like if you're infected with COVID. Well, um, actually, uh, a good number of people are completely asymptomatic. Uh-huh. Uh, but for those who are symptomatic, it's usually similar to just the common cold, sore throat, feeling a little achy, perhaps, um, you know, feeling um, fatigued, right. um, having a runny nose, um, you know, a cough. And th- those are the, the common things that, that, you know, everybody associates with a cold. Right. Now, the the news, I think it was maybe by Saturday, they were making a, a large deal about his oxygen was dropping. Oh, my goodness, he needed oxygen or supplemental oxygen. Uh you know, I get that. You understand it. But explain why that could be a bad sign if you're dropping your oxygen. 
So, so one of the, the, the most dangerous things about a um, uh, severe COVID infection is that when it gets into the lower respiratory tract, meaning, um, you know, into the lungs, um, it can impair your ability to, um, to get oxygen into the blood, um, and that, that could result in a low oxygen level reading. Right. Now, they said he's, he's been off it for a few days, he's without fever, and that this is a good sign. Explain that. Yeah, and that, that typically is, uh, you know, one, one of the earliest signs of improvement. If people stop having fevers and, you know, they're, if they're uh, not in, needing an increasing amount of uh, supplemental oxygen. Um, and uh, that, that usually is a favorable prognosticator. But I think that one of the things that we've seen repeatedly is that patients, some patients initially get better or seem to get better, and then about a week later get worse all of a sudden. Right, right. Now, the, la- the last thing really to cover in the last, last few minutes here is this drug cocktail that they, they described. It was the monoclonal antibody, which you are doing research yourself on, so you comment on that. Uh, an aspirin a day. He is taking Pepsid over-the-counter, or I don't know if it's uh, prescription strength or the amount he was getting, famotidine, and then the latest is that he was getting steroids. So in, in a sense, that cocktail, why does that seem to be the treatment of choice for these milder cases, plus the, uh, plus the remdesivir that he received? Right. And so actually remdesivir is not, you know, something typically somebody mild. Um, it, right. it seems like, you know, kind of from what I'm reading, they're just throwing the kitchen sink at it to prevent right. him from getting worse. Right. Um, so that includes the, the monoclonal antibodies, uh, the, you know, remdesivir, which is an antiviral. So all these therapies are, are you know, given in the, in the hopes that it will accelerate viral clearance um, and, and kind of accelerate time to symptom resolution and also prevent progression to, to very serious disease. Yeah. Now, it seems like the steroids certainly are going to act by trying to cut down the inflammation, and that really, it's not so much the virus that is killing patients, it's the inflammation, the inflammatory response that the virus triggers. That's right. And so, so that's one of the, the more dangerous aspects of COVID-19 infection is that uh, a severe in, infl- inflammatory response that the, the patient mounts in response to the viral infection uh, potentially is, is destructive to the patient. So, so it, it, it results in a lot of damage to multiple organs if it's out of control. And so right. one of the, the, the goals of the steroids is to, to kind of keep that inflammation from, from becoming unrestrained. Right, right. You know, in, in the final comment here, really in a sense, what it, it seems like he's getting better. That, again, he's not out of the woods, but he certainly is, is uh, maybe on the mend. In 30 seconds, the lesson that you think we all need to learn from this. Well, I think the, the, the take-home message here should be that not, nobody is invulnerable to this. Right. Um, you know, it, it's definitely still out there in the community, unfortunately. And uh, I think we have to be patient about this. You know, eventually this pandemic is going to pass, but only after we've kind of instituted control measures. And over time, we're going to have better drugs to deal with it and right. an effective vaccine. And that's going to keep that's going to reduce it to something that's more hopefully uh, a nuisance. Right. Um, and you're rather than a, a mortal danger. 
Exactly. Uh, but we're not. We're definitely not past that right now, and, and we have to be. Uh, we have to be patient, and we have to to continue to to, to be steadfast and, and and you know minimizing our risks. Absolutely, Dr. Howard Wong. It's always a pleasure. I will see you in the morning, and thanks for coming on. Take care. All right. All right. Bye now. You bet. Bye bye. All right, Dr. Howard Wong with Houston Methodist Hospital. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. The news is coming up in a minute. Becky Vance, Drug Prevention Resources. Be back in a minute. Welcome back, everybody. Dr. Joe Galati, bringing you the best in health and wellness. And it's no surprise we're bringing you the best music, too. We're trying to make this a full experience. Learn a little health and wellness. We talk about food. We talk about music every so often. But anyway, on the line, as promised, Becky Vance. Haven't had her on in a while, but she's been a regular contributor. She is the CEO of Drug Prevention Resources, and it's always a pleasure to have her on. Becky, thank you for coming on tonight. Oh, it's my pleasure, Dr. Galati. It's so good to talk to you and your audience. Well, I I can never get enough of what you have to say because when you look at the the numbers— the impact on families and lives and individuals that drug abuse, alcoholism uh, creates, we should, you know, we, we should have Becky Vance on every week for 10 minutes just to give an update. <laughs> we might be able to work that out. But Becky, why don't, why don't you give everybody a 30-foot, a 30,000-foot view of where we are at with addiction, drug abuse, alcohol, and how do we really set the stage and where should everybody be thinking? Where should everybody's mind be right now tuning in as to being reflective as to the problem at hand? Well, I think one of the things that I uh, like to say, and the research backs this up, is that addiction is 100% preventable, that if we can keep kids from ever trying alcohol or any other drug, the chances increase greatly that they never will. It's something like, I don't know, 50% at least, probably more. Uh-huh. So um, and there are things that parents and caregivers can do to keep their children safe and healthy and well. You've you've been in this space for quite a long time. Has the parent in 2020 changed compared to the the parent in 1995, let's say? Yes, I think so because we've got a lot of changes at the national level. Um, you know, the first thing that I think of is the decriminalization and legalization of marijuana. Uh-huh. And so uh, while it used to be a big deal to a parent, if they, you know, the school called and said your your child was using marijuana at school, that was a big deal. And they'd get in trouble. They might get grounded. But now it seems with um, the permissive attitudes across the country about it, 
both parents and kids think that it's okay to do, that it's safe. And parents look at marijuana as a rite of passage. Right. And um, and they just accept that it's going to happen, which is really sad. Right. I, I think we'll get to that in a moment. Now, the as we were talking about COVID-19, just on the first half of the program with Dr. Wong, you and other addiction specialists are seeing an increase in overdoses because of this. And explain that to everybody, why that is yet another unintended consequence of, of uh, being cooped up in your house and staying home and not being around people. Yeah, so um, like I said to you earlier, uh, addiction is really a disease of isolation and separateness and doing things in secret, whether that's alcohol or other drugs. And so um, we're seeing overdoses go up across the country. In Texas, I believe it's 18% usually every year. But now with COVID, it's just spiking horribly because people who use drugs or people in recovery even. So there's a lot of relapses and a lot of people that just continue using drugs. And because there's, uh, for example, in re- um, in recovery, 12-step groups that support people like Cocaine Anonymous, Alcohol Anonymous, they're all happening on Zoom. Well, because this addiction is such a disease of isolation, you can see everybody when you're in a 12-step meeting on Zoom, but you can't touch anybody. You can't hug anybody. You can't right. make coffee, all of those things. Um, and so also they uh, these deaths of despairs and suicide um, really have an impact on people's drug use. Um, it's It's scary that the number of overdoses is increasing, and there are a couple of reasons for that. The first one that comes to mind is that, um, gosh, I forgot where I was going with that, is that a lot of people, um, people who use drugs mm-hmm. are in... Uh, are using drugs by themselves. And so that's the least safe place for a person to use drugs, especially when we're talking about opioids. So we're seeing a lot more overdoses because there's nobody there with the Narcan ready to help reverse that overdose. Right. Now, I would assume, and, and we see it in our own practice with alcohol and alcoholic liver disease, where so many people are coming in to say this, the typical scenario, I lost my job in March. Uh, financial stress, I've had a baseline drinking problem that just basically exploded from April to July and August, and they come to the hospital in in essentially liver failure from unopposed alcohol use. And it is time and time again, story after story, COVID, COVID, COVID. Are you seeing this as well? Absolutely. You know, because um, people who abuse or are addicted to alcohol or other drugs, they um, they use that to cope, to, to take away the pain, to take away any kind of uncomfortable feelings. So it makes a whole lot of sense with everybody, you know, hunkered down for COVID and all of these uh, financial struggles and extra stresses on top of the family uh, that they would you know, default to what they know how, you know, an easy fix. So because it's pretty dismal when you're looking out there at the future and, you know, you don't have your house anymore, you might have been evicted. Um, It's just really, really sad. And so that's uh, an easy way for people to medicate their feelings around that whole thing. 
Now, short of somebody truly being isolated, living by them themselves, and there are plenty of people that are like that, but for the husband and wife, boyfriend and girlfriend, um, significant other, that it's, it's just the two of them. And they see the other person spinning out of control. They're drinking much more. The drug abuse is going up or their behavior. I would think the toughest thing is to have that confrontation. How do how does the the other partner or spouse or sibling intervene? How do what training do they need? Well, they don't need any special training. They just um, need to speak from their heart. They need to have courage sure. to bring up in a loving manner. You know, here are the things that I'm seeing. Here are the behaviors that I'm seeing with you, which cause me concern because I love you so much. And I'd hate for, you know, you to relapse or whatever is the, whatever it is that they're planning to do. Or, and, um, and they really just don't need to have any special training. But here's what I'm seeing. And I think you should talk to someone. Exactly. Yeah, whether it, that's it, your it, church yeah. or, yeah. Yeah, no, it's having the conversation, but being quiet is is the worst thing to do. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, because, um, you know, you're just really enabling that person. And how bad are you going to feel if something does happen to your loved one and you knew something was going on, but you didn't say anything? So um, that you just have to do it. And it takes tremendous courage. Um, but you can bring in other family members to help. I mean, there's still things like interventions going on oh, if sure. someone is seriously, yeah. seriously worried about someone. With, without a doubt. All right, Becky, I'm going to put you on hold. We've got one more segment coming up. Becky Vance is the CEO of Drug Prevention Resources. The website, drugfreegeneration.org, drugfreegeneration.org. And that isn't that a great website? All right, Dr. Joe Galati, final segment coming up, drjogalati.com. Stay tuned. Of course, we will be right back. Final segment of this week's Your Health First. Actually going out with one of my most favorite songs. Tomorrow is Monday morning and we are back at the grind. Hopefully you've learned some actionable information tonight on the program. That is our goal to to provide you with actionable information. Now, Becky Vance is with us, CEO of Drug Prevention Resources, the website drugfreegeneration.org. And my sense is that, number one, all of you need to go there, bookmark it, and number two, probably the best resource there, from my perspective, is information on all of the various drugs. Becky, would you say that is a strong point of the website that parents and other adults, caretakers can go there and learn about the drugs that they hear about, that they think their kids are talking about so that they are equipped with the knowledge to deal with this. 
Absolutely. I know that to be true. <laughs> well, I know. You should yes. be very proud of the website. Thank you. That's high praise. Well, you know, in uh, you know, here we are. We have, you know, 10 minutes left and a lot to get in here. All right. So this is our rapid fire round. Um, okay. One, one thing, and I commented this afternoon to you, so you're, you're probably tipped off of what I'm going to ask. This absolutely drives me insane where parents will almost think that they are brilliant with the idea that they are going to host a party, an after-prom party, whatever the scene may be, with a bunch of 15-year-olds. And you know what? I'm going to have the kids drink at my house where I could see what's going on. Let them get drunk. I'd rather, and then uh, they could all sleep in the upstairs bedroom rather than drinking elsewhere and having to drive. Now, getting off the road or staying off the road is key, but having them or, or promoting the idea that having a 15-year-old drink at your house is better is very misguided. Please comment. <laughs> I agree with you, yeah. absolutely. And, and I speak from personal experience in that, too, because that's how I got such an early start to drinking is that uh-huh. that was the way that my mother believed. And so we know that those kids who start early are the ones who are much more likely to develop an addiction later. But parents, it's it's really, they're not intentionally thinking that they're doing anything bad. They think they're protecting their kids. And so um, it's just a little education that they need, a wake-up call. Right. Uh, that it is definitely not okay to do that. There are all kind of liabilities associated with it. And in Texas, about 50% of kids who drink obtain alcohol from a parent or a relative, whether that's in a, in a house contained or just, you know, anywhere else. But definitely it is not okay. It's a punishable um, offense in Texas. It's a law, current Texas law, furnishing alcohol to minors. Sure. Um, and they can be fined up to $4,000. However, that's really difficult to enforce. I, I would imagine. I so would imagine. Um, we, we approach that to, in a community. Uh, we try to implement, well, we actually do implement social host ordinances in communities that are designed to educate the community about what's okay and what's not okay, because it's about social norms, you know, in a community. And if everybody thinks it's okay to drink alcohol, then parents are going to be more likely to think that way about being being there for their kids and um, making sure that everybody stays safe. But there's so many things that can go wrong with that. And the worst, I definitely know the worst one, is for your child to become addicted because their brain is not developed until they're 25 years old. So the earlier you introduce that alcohol into the adolescent brain, you know, it's just a recipe for disaster. Absolutely. Now, second second topic, marijuana. You, You mentioned the rite of passage, and with the legalization, it, it is almost as if if you, you stand up and say marijuana in all of its forms is really no good, I'm not in favor of it, you are almost ostracized to say, come on, Becky, get with the program, you're, you're, you're old-fashioned and get with the times, this is 2020. But when, when I talk to those that are in addiction and recovery and prevention— 
they are still steadfast that this is a gateway drug, that it leads to other things, and it just is not healthy. What are your thoughts on it? Oh, that's those are my thoughts on it, um, and I speak from experience there. But it's just a um, it's just a, a huge problem because again, social norms in all have become about that marijuana is just harmless. You know, it's legal in some states. How can it hurt me? And they just don't know enough to know that it's definitely so much stronger than it was the marijuana that their kids are using is so much stronger than the marijuana they used as they may have used when they were younger. There are just so many things that parents don't know. And it really, really upsets me when they do believe that that is going to be a rite of passage. And so what we try to do is just, you know, give them the facts, the facts that there are so many chemicals in this, in the marijuana, just the facts and don't try to argue, Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. you know, anything else. And, um, and, and that helps a lot of parents really think about that differently, but it is the only drug in our communities. And I think nationally as well, drug use is going, that, that use is going up because of everybody accepting that that's okay and it's legal. So, right. um, you know, in, yeah, in a community here, we are actually, you know, measuring our outcomes, and we know that we have reduced uh, opioid use. We have reduced past 30-day use with alcohol, but marijuana is a upward trend, and I don't know what it's going to take to stop it, but I pray that we can figure that out. Oh, for sure. Now, now through drug prevention resources, somebody is listening tonight, or they listen to a read broadcast, and they they have teenage kids or they have an adult child or a spouse, brother, best friend that is is heading towards trouble. What are the resources there as far as either simply online educational material? Are there programs that they can go to? Is there a hotline? Tell me what all of you offer and why those that are concerned should seek you out. Um, well, we, you know, we are more on the prevention side, but we work with partners here mm-hmm. um, that can actually talk to a parent. I mean, I can talk to a parent, uh, but I'm not a clinician, so I have to make that distinction. Sure. So we talk to a lot of parents who are concerned and so um, about their kid. They don't know if it's normal or not, so we will um, encourage them to download specific resources like here's how to talk to your child. When you suspect there's a drug problem, whether that child is and it's age appropriate. And so on the prevention end, we can do the same. How to talk to a seven-year-old is different than how you talk to a 13-year-old. Right. So we have so many resources available to help with that. We have 12-step groups. We have we work with a lot of different um, drug counselors here in the community mm-hmm. and can refer out for that if it's something really if it's really serious. So we like to be the one-stop shop for people who are concerned about alcohol or other drugs. Right. So final final word here, Becky, as far as with all the information and, and resources that you have, the one most important take-home message tonight, as a starter, because you will be back, right? You have to promise me that. Um, <laughs> for, for tonight, the take-home, the most important single message. What do you want to leave everybody with? I think um, I'm pretty sure that the worst, the, the most important thing I can say is that you must take action if you suspect your child is, you know, involved with 
alcohol or other drug use. You must take action because to sit back and wait, it's, we know that it does never gets any better. It always gets worse. So at the first signs is when you need to step up because their chance there is more uh, is greater to be able to intervene and have a positive outcome and a kid who's drug-free and still alive by the time they're 21. Right. Don't just sit back. Absolutely. That is a uh, sage advice for everybody tonight. <laughs> Becky, it's uh, great to reconnect with you. I'm glad you're doing well and you're making such uh, tremendous contributions to the community. Let us stay in touch and... Um, you know, certainly we'll continue to spread the word of all the uh, good work you and your organization are doing. Thank you, Dr. Galati. All right, Becky. We'll see you soon now. All right. That was Becky Vance. Uh, again, I will be posting information and the replay of the program. You'll be able to listen to it again. All right. I'm Dr. Joe Galati. DrJoeGalati.com. We'll see you next Sunday evening. Have a great week. Eat well. Exercise. Watch out for COVID. Be safe. And we'll see you next Sunday. Thanks for listening today to our podcast. Don't forget, for more information, check out drjoegalati.com. Information about my book, Eating Yourself Sick, is available there, as well as our clinical practice, radio program, and social media links. We need you to be part of our tribe and community. Until we meet again, I'm Dr. Joe Galati. Ciao.